This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And you are listening to an episode of our Ask a Doctor series. And today we're talking about something that perhaps not everyone is usually comfortable talking about. We're talking about your poo, um, your bowel movements and your gut health um, in relation to that as well. So joining me in the studio to answer all your questions on this topic today is consultant gastroenterologist, Dr. Dr. Mahindra Raj. It's been a long time since we've had you on. Dr. Mahindra, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank Thank you very much, Suen, for having me on your show again. It's nice to be back. Glad to have you back. Now, for our listeners out there, you can call us with your questions at double seven double three two nine hundred. You can also WhatsApp us at zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. And if you're online, you can also tweet us at BFM Radio. Um, Dr. Mandra, maybe we'll start with a few more general questions about this topic, right? Um, what does our poo actually tell us about our health, especially our gastrointestinal health? Because we tend to see it more as a waste product, right? Yeah, well, you know what? We can sometimes overdo looking into what the poo tells us. So the, the one thing to maybe start with is to realise that there's a very, very marked variability in uh, people's bowel habits among mm. normal healthy individuals. Some people go... Three times a day, some people go once every three days, some people pass stool, and forgive the colourful language, some people pass stool which is sausage-shaped, or uh, some people pass stool which is a bit mushy, mm. sometimes a bit loose, some people pass stool which is a little... So there's a marked variability in um, the bowel habits of people from the point of view of frequency of bowel movement as well as the shape, colour and form of the stool. Having said that, of course... The bowel habits have to be taken into context. Mm-hmm. If there's a change in bowel habits or if it's associated with other symptoms such as weight loss, blood in the stool, abdominal pain, then it might be an indication of underlying illness. So information from the stool has to be taken into context with associated symptoms and whether there's been a change in the pattern of stool. Mm. Most people, well, from anecdotal experience, right, Dr. Mahindra, most people only gauge how healthy their poo is based on feel. Um, but you've mentioned colour and, and, and shape as well. Um, what is that? Why is it important to look at each of these different factors? Well, maybe it's best to first and foremost consider some of the extreme end of the spectrum where there's no doubt that there's, there's a problem. For example, if you're passing just watery stool mm. 10 times a day, that's mm. abnormal, no mm-hmm. matter what, right? Or if you're struggling to poo and you're only going once every one or two weeks, that also means there's probably a little bit of a problem. But in between, there's a marked variation. And again, I come back to the point that in between, really, uh, you need to take it into context with symptoms, with mm. associated symptoms. But There are certain things that you'd look for in the form. For example, if the stool is very, very pale and floats, it could mean that there's some form of malabsorption of nutrients, either because there's a problem with the functioning of the small intestine or there's a problem with the functioning of other organs which are important in digestion, such as the pancreas. So conditions of the pancreas and small intestine may produce like loose floaty, greasy stool, which is very, very pale. Mm. Uh, But apart from those extreme um, examples, or there may be blood in the stool, apart from those extreme examples, um, you can't read 
too much into the form or colour or frequency of the stool unless there's a change in pattern and, associ- and, and, and associated symptoms. Mm. And on that note, we've already had a listener asking, uh, Dr. Mahendra, Anthony is asking, and I guess this this links to what we're mm. talking about, right? If if I have been having low quality poo, not quite diarrhea, but a bit more on the mushy end, um, when do I need to worry and see a doctor about it? Because you've spoken about variability between individuals. Yeah. Look, you know what? Some people have mushy stool all the time, and mm. it, it could be just a function of the food they eat, mm. it could be a function of their intrinsic gastrointestinal motility, which means a movement of the gut. And it might not be a problem at all. If you pass mushy stool every day and you've been doing it for the last 60 or 70 odd years and you're not losing weight, you feel good, uh, you're perky every morning, then I don't think there's any, any um, cause for concern. But if you're someone who's been passing a sausage-like stool every day for about 60 years, Mm. and then suddenly in the last one or two months, the stool is becoming a little mushy or there's a bit of a struggle with the poo, or worse still, if you notice that it has got mucus or blood in Mm. it, or if you have pain, then there's a problem. And that's when you have to go and see a doctor and get yourself checked out. Mm. So that context is very important. Mm. And could you elaborate more, Dr. Mahendra, what influences our bowel movements? You know, what are the common causes of unhealthy bowel movements that cause these changes in variability? Okay. It's interesting that you use the term unhealthy bowel mm. movements. I, I guess what is healthy and unhealthy also depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. If someone is used to passing motion once every, say, four days... Mm-hmm. And that's something he or she has been doing for years and it's not causing any discomfort. That That's no problem at all. Okay, if someone is passing stool every three days and it's not an inconvenience and that's okay, that's mm. not a problem. So, but on the other hand, if someone has suddenly got blood in the stool or there's pain, then that's a problem. Okay, so again, how you judge your stool depends on whether there's a change in pattern, there's a recent change in pattern and associated symptoms. Except, as I said before, in the extreme case where you're having 10 to 20 watery stools Mm. with blood or mucus, then that's clearly a problem, you know. Mm. Sometimes we hear, Dr. Mahendra, that certain foods are more likely to um, affect your bowel movements. Uh, Are there certain categories here? So, um, firstly... Obviously, the food we take influences. If you take a diet which is very high in fiber, fruit mm-hmm. and vegetables, you're more likely to have a large volume stool which is a bit more bulky and soft and well-formed. If you're the type of person who hates vegetables, you don't drink water and you don't exercise, then every day it could be a bit of a struggle. Your stool may be dry, hard or pallet-like and it could be a bit of a strain to pass mm-hmm. stool um, every day. It also depends on the medication you take. Some people are on medication which kind of loosens up their stool. Some people are on medication which makes them a bit constipated. And then there's also the factors which are intrinsic to the individual. For example, the speed or motility of the, of the gut. Some mm-hmm. people have a gastrointestinal peristaltic movements which are a little bit rapid. So if their peristaltic movements are rapid, then they're more likely to produce an easy stool a bit more frequently. If the motility is a bit slower, then they're more likely to be a bit constipated. And now, of course, everyone talks about the gut microbiome, Mm -hmm. that ecosystem of trillions of bacteria and germs in the gut. And the, the, the microbacteria 
are probably also an important factor in the type of poo you produce. But how it influences that is something which is still very much a work in progress. And researchers are only just scratching the surface in terms of trying to figure how the gut microbiome influences your bowel movements. Hmm. Um, speaking of the gut microbiome, um, we have a question on um, probiotics and prebiotics. Um, to what extent do they affect bowel movement as well? Yeah, I almost predicted that that question will come <laughs> up at some point. Always. <laughs> Look, um, we know that the gut microbiome is an important factor in the type of poo you produce. And we don't know too much about how it influences. Mm. We also know that on an individual basis, uh, you'll see, I see patients saying that, oh, doctor, when I take this probiotic, my poo is good. Uh, by the same token, there are other people who say, look, I take this probiotic and nothing happens. In terms of research, there's actually very little strong data to make firm recommendations mm. about any specific type of probiotic in managing conditions such as constipation or diarrhea. Um, in very specific conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, there are certain very specific combinations of probiotics which are have been shown to be helpful. But in the majority of cases, I don't think we can make any firm recommendations about which probiotic or which prebiotic actually uh, helps you deal with the constipation or diarrhea. And sometimes it's a hit and miss thing, sometimes mm. a trial and error thing. Because mm. probiotics are by and large innocuous, mm -hmm. if individual patients say, look, doctor, I feel good with this probiotic, my inclination is not to discourage them. Mm. It varies from individual to individual. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, for our listeners out there, you can keep your questions coming. You can call us at double seven double three two nine hundred. You can WhatsApp us at zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine, or you can also tweet us at BFM Radio. We'll be going for a very quick break, and we'll be right back on the show. With me today is consultant gastroenterologist Dr. Dr. Mahindra Raj, and we are, and you're listening to an episode of our Ask a Doctor series. And today, you can ask. Dr. Mahendra, all about your poo and your gut health. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su, and you're tuned to an episode of our Ask a Doctor series. And today we're talking all about your gut health and in particular your bowel movements and your poo. So you can take this opportunity to ask your questions um, to our guest today, who, who is Dr. Dr. Mahendra Raj, consultant gastroenterologist. You can call us at double seven double three two nine hundred. You can also WhatsApp us. The number is 018-789-8899. Dr. Mahendra, we have someone who who is asking, um, Kat is asking, why does eating extra spicy food also cause um, discomfort and diarrhea? And is it bad to eat it on a regular basis? Because I really like the, the food despite the discomfort that it causes me. Well, I think the good news is that spicy foods are unlikely to cause any structural damage to the mm. gut. So that's a bit of a myth. In fact, there's some uh, lab evidence uh, based on mice and rats that chili might actually actually have a protective effect on the lining of the stomach. But what we have to realize is that the gut is a long muscular tube mm -hmm. with a very, very complex network of nerves and nerve cells. And what the components of spicy foods, whatever it is, whether it's capsicum in, 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 the, in the chili or whatever, mm. uh, has 
effects on the nerves of the gastrointestinal tract. So if they stimulate certain types of nerves, it may make the gut move much, much faster. The peristaltic activity of the gut may go very, very fast. And when that happens, you'll be prone to diarrhea. So how chili causes diarrhea is that it stimulates the gut to become, uh, to, to move much faster. And so mm. when the gut, when the, when the effluent moves very fast through the large intestine or the colon, there's not enough time for the water to be reabsorbed, so the pool becomes watery. By the same token, there are also many nerve receptors mm -hmm. in the lining of the gut which are sensitive to various stimuli, which are then processed by the brain and experienced as pain. This doesn't necessarily mean that there's damage to the gut, but there are certain chemicals which may just like stimulate these nerve signals and cause discomfort or irritation. I guess it can be akin to, say, putting a little bit of salt on a wound. Mm. If you put a little bit of salt on a wound, you may not necessarily cause damage to the wound, but it'll sting. So certain chemicals cause a little bit of a stinging sensation to certain people. And there's a marked variability in the type of nerve receptors. Some people are very, very sensitive nerve receptors and some people don't. And the sensitivity of these nerve receptors is often influenced by things like probably the gut microbiota, but also things by personality, like personality, stress and emotional factors. There's something called a brain-gut axis. Mm. And if your brain-gut axis is a particularly sensitive type, then whenever you get uptight, you might get a bit more discomfort. And that discomfort might be aggravated if you went out for a packet of extra spicy nasi lemak. <laughs> um, what is that link, Dr. Mandra, between stress and your gut health and your bowel movements? I mean, you hinted at it, but it's something that we hear people talk about more and more. Yeah. Look, I mean, almost all of us um, have experienced the nervousness of butterflies in the stomach when mm -hmm. you have to go for a major exam or an important interview or uh, having to propose to your fiancé or whatever makes you nervous. And there is something called the brain-gut axis. You see, mm -hmm. as, I, as I just alluded to a moment ago, there's a very complex network of nerves and nerve cells in the gut, and there's an intimate connection between mm -hmm. the brain and the gut through the spinal cord. So if the brain is anxious and the brain is stressed, those signals get sent down to the gut and it influences the nerves in the gut. And the nerves in the gut then make the muscles sometimes move much faster, causing diarrhea, and sometimes causing contractions, which, are, which is manifested as colicky pains or bloatedness mm. and all manner and means of uh, gastrointestinal symptoms. So it's a brain-gut axis, mm -hmm. and it's the emotional factors and stress which influences the brain uh, which in turn influences the gut. Mm, all right. Um, we have a question on bloating and gassiness from Cheryl, who's asking, Is um, are both of those things, bloating and gassiness, an indicator of poor gut health? And uh, if it's not a chronic problem, but an intermittent one, what can I do about it? Yeah. See, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not an easy question to answer mm -hmm. because there's this gut health is something which has become a very fashionable term. But it's a very nebulous term. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, there are some people who have very definite, serious gut disease. Mm -hmm. People who have cancer of the colon, people who have inflammatory bowel, severe inf inflammation of the colon, 
people who have gallbladder disease, ulcers, and that's a whole bunch of what we would normally call organic gastrointestinal disease. Then there's this huge subset of conditions which we term as functional gastrointestinal disorders. In functional gastrointestinal disorders, there's no major structural damage to the gut. So if you put in a scope or did x-rays and things, you wouldn't detect any abnormalities. But there are problems with the functioning of the gut from the point of view of pain perception and movement of the gut. And it's these conditions which sometimes manifest themselves as bloating and gassiness. But you go and see a doctor and all the tests are done and the doctor pats you on the head and says nothing wrong with you. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's not that it's nothing wrong with you. It's just it's nothing serious and nothing which is going to be potentially life-threatening. So there are a lot of theories as to why people get bloating mm. and discomfort in this group of conditions called functional GI disorders. It may have th something to do with the sensitivity of the nerves. It may have something to do with the gut, gut microbiome. It may have something to do with short-chain carbohydrates, which are part of our diet, and the way the bacteria act on these carbohydrates to ferment them. Um, short-chain carbohydrates are fermented by the gut bacteria, mainly in the colon, and this produces gas. Uh, a consequence of this is gas. And so the type of food we eat influences mm. the amount of gas which is generated as a consequence of fermentation of this carbohydrate. Are there certain types of food that are more likely to cause bloated? Yes, there are. I mean, um, there's this concept of FODMAPs. FODMAPs is an acronym which I don't mm -hmm. want to go into, but basically it means short-chain carbohydrates which are fermented by bacteria mm -hmm. to produce gas. So foods which have high levels of FODMAPs tend to produce more gas mm -hmm. than foods which have low levels of FODMAPs. So if someone already has a sensitive gut, then if they take foods which are high in FODMAPs, they're more likely to feel bloated. Mm. But you also have to realize that there are some very resilient people who can eat foods with high FODMAPs with impunity. Nothing happens to what them. What are some examples of those foods? Well, you know, there, there are certain beans, obviously, legumes, mm. beans, peas, um, green bees, cabbage, cauliflowers. Some of these things have high levels of FODMAPs. Leafy green vegetables tend to have slightly lower levels of FODMAP. So, and in fact, if you, any of you are interested, they are now on the internet, which mm -hmm. is, of course, a ubiquitous source of information <laughs> for everybody. Uh, reputable sites with a list of foods with high FODMAP levels and low FODMAP levels. And for people with kind of bloating, gassiness, or a diagnosis of irritable bowel attached to them, they can sometimes try and adjust their diet. But with a little warning, you shouldn't get too caught up in that and paint yourself into a corner and have a excessively restrictive diet. Mm. We also have John asking, um, how important or, or how much does Greek yogurt matter when it comes to my gut health? I mean, and, and I guess to add to that, we, we often hear about other fermented foods as well, right? Um, in, in that to, to widen the conversation a bit. So th there's, there's a general perception that yogurt and fermented foods, naturally fermented, which have what we like to think is good bacteria, is good for you. Mm -hmm. And there's some evidence that uh, these things uh, help people. Um, how much, how effective it is in general gut health is still, I think, a matter of some controversy. 
Certainly, in certain instances, for example, if you have an episode of food poisoning, food poisoning means acute infection of the mm-hmm. gut with bacteria or, or, or viruses, then taking non-milk-containing yogurt after some period of time may help to replenish some of the bacteria which have been de- which have been killed by the invading bacteria and may help. Um, I think it's probably true to say that Greek yogurt is probably good. Mm-hmm. How strong the evidence is, if you're if you're if you're from a very strict scientific point, would probably still be a little bit open. But there's no evidence that it's harmful, unless of course you have lactose intolerance. Because if you have lactose intolerance, then any kind of dairy or milk product is likely to cause symptoms of bloating or loose motions. Mm. That ties in quite nicely to this question we have from another listener, Dr. Mahendra, who's asking why after having milk tea or milk coffee, I can, uh, I have, I almost have immediate diarrhea. Okay, well, there are many potential reasons for that. But one possible candidate is that you may have lactose intolerance. Mm-hmm. Uh, lactose, as you know, is a sugar which is found in cow's milk. And among Asians especially, among especially Asians with an East Asian uh, ethnic roots, mm-hmm. um, there's a very high probability that as you grow older, among many of them, an enzyme in, in the gut called lactase, which is responsible for digesting lactose, slowly declines with age. So as a result of that, these people cannot digest the sugar lactose, which is found in milk. And as a result of that, um, patients often have diarrhea and bloating. So it could be lactose intolerance. Equally, it might be that you're a little bit sensitive to tea or mm. even coffee because coffee, for example, is actually a natural laxative. Mm-hmm. It increases gut motility, makes the gut move a little bit faster. And there are many people who can't start the day without a cup of coffee yes. because they need it to make the trip to the loo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that could also, it could be that this person is kind of particularly sensitive to tea or, or, or coffee. Mm. Um, another listener is asking, I only go to, I only poop once in every four to five days. It's usually very little and res- it resembles bits of small stones or pebbles. Um, mm. I do eat a lot of vegetables and fruits. Is this considered normal? I guess, is it is it considered with the normal within that range of variability sure. that you were talking about? So I, I think there are many things that this particular listener has told me or mentioned, which indicates it is not normal. Mm. And the main reason I say it's not normal because she's obviously uncomfortable. Mm. She describes discomfort. She describes palate-like stools. And so she's not happy with the situation. So the mere fact that she's not happy with the situation means that it's a problem. Now, there are some unfortunate people who eat all the fruit and vegetables in the world and mm-hmm. still struggle. Mm-hmm. All right, and they And they have to face the, the, the irritating advice of everybody saying, oh, you need to eat more vegetables, you need to drink more water, you need to exercise more. They do all these things and yet they mm-hmm. struggle and it's not their fault. These people have a, a problem with gut motility or they have a problem with the kind of mechanics involved in having a poo. To have a poo, actually, a lot of things have to happen. I don't want to engage in a long lecture on <laughs> physiology, but basically, mm-hmm. number one, you've got to have the urge to have a poo. Mm-hmm. Then your anal sphincter has to kind of relax. 
the pelvic floor has to kind of descend and relax. There has to be a bit of contraction of the colon and there sometimes has to be a bit of voluntary contraction of the muscles. And all of those things have to happen before you have a poo. And most people take this for granted. But in some people, one or other of these little steps is messed up. And that makes it difficult for the person to poo. So in this kind of situation, I would suggest that they see a specialist, either a gastroenterologist or a colorectal surgeon, to firstly undergo investigations to make sure that there's nothing serious, and then look at ways uh, which can help the person. Sometimes that might involve medication. Sometimes that might involve certain specific techniques or Mm alteration of the diet, but there are things which can be done to help people like this. And this, uh, they are they're unfortunate people because they do every, all the right things and still suffer. Mm. Um, another listener is asking about their mother who says that uh, my mother is 84. She's suffering from constipation. She has tried using an enema, but it has been unsuccessful. I guess what other options do they have? So at 85, No, most doctors will just be a little bit wary Mm. about treating constipation with medicines without investigating. Mm -hmm. So at 85, if there's constipation, a very careful history has to be taken by the doctor and a very thorough examination has to be undertaken to make sure that there's nothing serious underlying. God forbid, for for example, things like colon cancer, uh, diverticulosis of the colon. There are a whole host of conditions which can cause constipation. So the first thing is to make sure that there's no serious underlying cause for the constipation. After that, if that has been cleared, then it's a question of making sure that they're doing all they can with the diet. As long as the patient is 85 years old, I'm not quite sure what the condition of this person is, mm. whether they are still relatively fit and well and able to have a normal diet and drink sufficient water, whether they are able to do some exercise. It could be that this 85-year-old is unfortunately bed-bound and not very active and so not taking an adequate amount of fibre and water. If, the, if that's the case, then the answer is to try and make sure they get enough fluids and fibre. If all of that doesn't work, then mm-hmm. there's recourse to medication. And there are a whole host of laxatives, medications to make you poo. And doctors would normally use um, various types of medications, starting from the most mild and simple laxatives and escalating, if these don't work, to stronger laxatives. But almost always you could get someone uh, to eventually have regular movements by adjusting the laxatives. Mm, all right. Um, another quick question before we go for a break. Um, Dr. Mandra, we have someone asking, you mentioned earlier about how medications can also affect your, your bowel movements. Um, someone is asking, can antidepressants also af- uh, cause loose stools? Yes, they can. There, there are certain antidepressants which can actually cause constipation. Mm. And there are certain uh, uh, antidepressants which may cause a bit of loose stools. You know, if you look at the leaflets of any medicine mm-hmm. which is uh, prescribed to you by a doctor and you look at the list of side effects, almost all of them will have diarrhea, mm. gastrointestinal symptoms or even constipation because almost any drug can cause almost any gastrointestinal symptoms. And it's it, it's a luck of the draw. Mm. You might be one in a thousand 
a patient who has diarrhea with a certain drug. You may be one in a thousand who has constipation. So the answer to that is yes. And sometimes there has to be a bit of a trial and error. There may have to be a trial of stopping the medicines for a short period of time and seeing whether the symptoms disappear mm. or, right. or improve. All right, we'll go for another very quick break uh, and then come back to continue this discussion. We still have quite a few questions coming in from our listeners. You can keep sending them in by calling us at double seven double three two nine hundred, or you can also WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. On the show with me today is consultant gastroenterologist Dr. Dr. Mahindra Raj on this episode of Ask a Doctor About Your Poo and Your Gastrointestinal Health. We'll be right back after a quick break, so keep it here on Health & Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su, and you're tuned into our Ask a Doctor series. And today we're talking, uh, well, we're taking all your questions about your poo and your bowel movements and your gut health in general. Joining me to answer those questions is consultant gastroenterologist, Dr. Dr. Mahendra Raj. You can keep sending your questions in. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Or if you want to give us a call, you can do that at double seven double three two. At double seven double three two nine hundred, um, Doctor Mandra, we have a question here from a listener who is asking. I notice that my bowel movements change when I'm on my period. Is there a link between hormones and my bowel movements? Oh, almost certainly, there is a link between. You know, there's a, there's a very complex physiological um, process which mm-hmm. determines and influences gut movements and. I I mentioned the brain-gut axis, I Mm -hmm. mentioned the the, the role of intestinal nerves and nerve cells, and hormones also interact with the nervous system of the gut and can certainly influence bowel movement. Some people get a bit constipated during the period, some people get a bit of loose motions, and anyone who's been pregnant and has have had kids would tell you that uh, having changes in the poo habits is one of the um, uh, what do we say, pleasures or joys of being pregnant. I mean, the, the, the hormones such as estrogens and the progestins certainly have an impact on bowel movements and gut motility. All right. Um, another question here from a listener. It's a bit more specific. Um, who's asking? You know, what is the cause of my watery stool? Uh, as in, I did a blood test recently, which indicated a high potassium level at six point one millimole uh, per liter. If I got that right, is that linked to my watery stool? Um, firstly, usually people who have diarrhea or, or watery stool, whether it's acute or chronic tend to have kind of lower potassium levels. They tend not to have high potassium mm. levels. If your blood test showed a high potassium level, um, there are many potential causes for that. But the first thing I would do under the circumstances is to repeat the blood test. Mm. Because when people take blood from the vein, sometimes there could be a spurious or, or erroneous result mm. because of the way the blood is taken. The red blood cells may break up a little bit and the 6.1 may not reflect an, reflect accurately on the serum potassium. So my advice to this patient would be to immediately recheck the blood potassium because 6.1 is quite high and if it is truly 6.1, it could be potentially hazardous and uh, you have to be investigated and treated for it immediately. 
All right. Um, we also have a question on gassiness and, and, and um, flatulence, you know, um, asking what is the cause of excessive gas? You know, well, the f- first question is what constitutes excessive gas, mm. you see? I mean... Is there, a, is there a benchmark or is it also a variable? You know, it's, it's something very difficult to measure. Mm-hmm. Unless you're in a very, very cutting-edge <laughs> research lab, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to say how many litres of gas in your gut actually produces gassiness. So gassiness and bloating is a perception. Mm. And if you have a very sensitive gut, mm-hmm. then even a low volume of gas might induce discomfort. If you have a less sensitive gut, then it would take a much larger volume of gas to induce discomfort. And people who've done research on it actually do research like blowing up balloons in people's rectum and mm. and, and, and stomach to see how there's a variation in that volume threshold to induce discomfort. So it really depends on your gut as to how sensitive you are. If you have a sensitive gut and you eat loads and loads of dal and legumes and beans and you produce a bit more gas than what you're accustomed to, then you're going to get discomfort. So the advice to you would be just ease off on the legumes and maybe stick to more green leafy vegetables. Is there such a thing as having too much gas? Not really, you know, Mm. not really. I mean, I don't think there's... I don't think that there's a condition where you could say, oh, if you exceed this amount of gas, it's abnormal. Mm-hmm. Except, again, in some extreme spectrums. For example, if you have intestinal obstruction because you have a tumour in the small intestine or something blocking the small intestine, then that's a very serious condition. And that would result in accumulation of very large volumes of gas in the small intestine, which cause it to swell up and potentially to actually burst open or perforate. That's an extreme end of the spectrum. Mm. But in most instances, the amount of gas actually that you can tolerate depends very much on your gut. Mm, all right. You can keep sending us your question. Uh, most of them are coming in through WhatsApp. So the number once again is 018-789-8899. Um, Dr. Mahendra, we have another question, uh, another listener who says, who says that uh, I have trouble controlling my bowel movements. Once I get the urge, I have to go immediately. Um, I can't wait or hold it in. What can I do about this? Yeah. So that's called urgency of stool. It's mm-hmm. a very common condition. Again, it could be a sign of a potentially serious gastrointestinal condition mm-hmm. or it could be a sign of what we would cause, call irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea-predominant irritable bowel syndrome. So what you should do really is to get yourself assessed properly. You have to see a doctor and be assessed from the point of view of having your history and examination taken and maybe even undergo investigations. And the investigations would be aimed at trying to exclude any potentially serious conditions like such as inflammation in the colon or a condition called diverticulosis. And if it's due to that, then there's very specific medication and treatment for those conditions. If all those investigations are negative and all these serious conditions are excluded, then we could then come down by the process of exclusion of saying, look, you probably have irritable bowel syndrome. And if you have irritable bowel syndrome, then there are a variety of dietary and lifestyle changes which you can make, such as 
reducing spicy foods, maybe reducing high FODMAPs foods. And also, there are certain medications which can mitigate the symptoms of that urgency. So that's where, uh, that's the kind of approach you have to take. Firstly, exclude serious problems. And then there are medications which, uh, and, diet, and dietary changes which can help uh, ameliorate or mitigate the circumstances. Mm. We also have Samad asking, um, Dr. Mahendra, what are the symptoms of IBS and how do I know if that's what I have? So the symptoms of IBS can be very varied. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it involves having some form of abdominal discomfort or cramping pains associated with a change with altered bowel pattern. Mm-hmm. And the bowel pattern can be either kind of diarrhea-ish, which means a bit of loose motions going more frequently than usual, or the opposite, which is constipation. So that's why we have what is called constipation predominant or diarrhea predominant mm. IBS. So if you have this set of symptoms, and these symptoms are something which have been going on for a long time, say more than six months, mm-hmm. and occurring fairly frequently, almost every week, a few times a week, then there's a high probability that you have irritable bowel syndrome. And if you have that set of symptoms, then you still have to see a doctor to make sure that there's nothing else going on. Because unfortunately, there are many potentially serious conditions which can mimic the symptoms of IBS, which can have almost identical symptoms of IBS. And again, so once you've excluded all of those things, then you can come to the conclusion that you have IBS. And then how IBS is managed um, depends on the form of IBS and what are the predominant symptoms and would include lots of things, including uh, managing the diet and lifestyle, managing stress. If there's a bit of underlying anxiety or depression, that has to be managed. Um, and there are certain medicines which can also help improve symptoms. Mm. Um, this one, I, I I think, might be beyond your ex- might be not with exactly within your expertise, Doctor Mahendra. But we have someone asking if anorexia is linked to your gut health. Um, well, that's an interesting question. Mm. Um, anorexia is primarily a mental health problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. And the gut consequences are usually secondary to the mental health problem. And so the treatment of it is primarily aimed at the psychological at the aspect, psychiatric yeah. and psychological aspects. Having said that, this is now a bit treading on very thin ice, right? Mm-hmm. But there are some people who believe that the gut microbiota and the gut composition of the composition of the gut microbiota may be a causative factor in certain types of mental health problems. Mm -hmm. So whether or not anorexia or for that matter, any psychiatric illness, including depression Mm -hmm. and anxiety, is related to the gut microbiota is an interesting open question. It's a matter of great speculation at this time. Mm -hmm. But there's some signals, there are some signals to suggest that the gut microbiota may also directly influence your mental health. Mm. But... As it stands, anorexia nervosa is primarily a mental health problem. Mm. All right. Um, another listener is asking um, about lactose intolerance again, saying that you know nowadays condensed milk or creamers are made from palm oil. Will it affect someone with lactose intolerance? So basically, if any of these creamers or, or milk products do not contain dairy and the 
and are lactose-free, mm-hmm. then they shouldn't have any symptoms. Mm. All right. Um, what about detox diets, Dr. Mahendra? It's from your perspective as a gastroenterologist, uh, are they advisable? Because and, and I'm talking about diets where we see people replacing solid foods with um, liquid-based um, drinks, uh, liquid-based food. Yeah, I guess as a gastroenterologist, the first question I'll ask you is, what on earth is a detox diet? <laughs> The detox diet is um, almost some kind of uh, fancy Mm. meal or diet which people take from time to time to kind of um, absolve them of all the sins that they commit over the (laughs) weeks and years to kind of um, justify doing all the naughty Mm. things and then after that take a detox drink and food and everything's okay. I don't think there's much evidence that all these... detox drinks and meals and things have a major impact on gut health. And I would take all these um, kind of advertised detox teas and, 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 and foods and drinks with a pinch of salt. Mm. All right. Um, we are sort of um, moving towards the end of our conversation today, Dr. Mahendra. Perhaps if you have a final message of our, for our listeners when it comes to maintaining um, good bowel movements and I guess paying attention to their poo. Well, I guess, I guess the advice which maybe our grandmothers have been giving us for decades mm-hmm. still applies. Make sure you eat plenty of fruit and vegetables, drink <laughs> plenty of fluids or enough mm-hmm. fluids mm. and exercise as much as you can, well, then you're doing yourself a favour and you're giving yourself the best chance of good bowel movements. Having said that, um, some people, despite the best efforts, mm. have a pro- problem with poo. Either they are constipated or they have loose motions. And with these people, I'd say maybe go and see a doctor and see how you can be helped. And my final message, if there has been a change in pattern Mm. of your bowel habits, and if there are other symptoms which have recently developed, such as weight loss, pain, or blood in your poo, then that might indicate something serious. It's time to see a doctor urgently. All right. Thank you so much for coming in today, Dr. Mahendra. I've been speaking to consultant gastroenterologist Dr. Dr. Mahendra Raj for this episode of Ask a Doctor. I'm Lim Suen and this has been Health and Living BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.